Okay. Uh, well, today we are in uh, Genesis 34. We started this chapter last week. And uh, we got through about the first seven verses or so. Now, don't laugh at me, but I want to finish the chapter today. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, it is, of course, the story of uh, the rape of Dinah, which sounds like a very unpleasant subject to talk about, and of course it is, but, but we found out last week there's a lot of important stuff in this chapter, and the part we're going to look at today has even more important principles for us to think about and consider. So, uh, so there really is a lot of meat in this chapter, and, and uh, I have been... Uh, personally, I've been really kind of challenged and exhorted as I've been studying it. And uh, so hopefully you will feel the same when we're finished. Uh, let's do this. Let's just read the chapter and then we'll go back and review what we talked about last week in the first few verses. And we'll look at the uh, look at the subsequent verses uh, today. So. Uh, Chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. The men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, because, or please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gifts, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamer with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be disgraceful to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our, your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now the words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, 
These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let us let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us will be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of this of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the fields and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Well, as I said, it's not a very pleasant chapter to read. It goes from bad to worse as we read. <laughs> but uh, last week we, we looked chiefly at, the, at kind of the beginning of the story, those first eight verses. What do you remember that we talked about and one or so of some of the principles that we thought about last week as we looked at the chapter? I tried to keep Ginger under control. She was accusing people in the class of acting like defense attorneys. And I... <laughs> <laughs> Now Rick can speak in his defense back here. Well, yeah, it's a little difficult to understand because it talks about the rape first and then it talks about the love and it keeps stressing this love or this affection. And I, uh, It's very clear, the scriptures seems very clear that in some, at some level he loved her. Uh, but we don't want to over... We don't want to over-exaggerate that. We don't want to, we don't want to make money. You know, we're not talking here about agape love, okay, uh, if we can use that term. Uh, clearly, his, his love is, is not a totally pure, clean thing. And we don't know at what point he really became attracted to her in, in a deeper sense. It may have been after the rape. So, we really don't know. But we do know very clearly, the Scripture is very clear, what he did was degrading. It was it was defiling. It was violent. Okay, so there's no there's no uh, condescension towards the rape itself. The scripture is very clear. 
But we also learned that the rape is really not the point of the passage. The rape is just kind of the background story to what then unfolds. So the point that the narrator is trying to make, both to the nation of Israel, as this is being written for their benefit out there in the wilderness, both for their sake to understand their own historical context, and also for our sakes as we understand the principles that are set forth, that the rape is really not the issue. It is simply the background story. And I hate to use that term simply because it's obviously a very grotesque and evil thing. But it is, it is the background story to, to uh, help us understand the events that follow after that. Okay? The frustration of Jacob uh, not stand up for his daughter. Yeah, so we talked a lot about that last week, about Jacob's passivity. And it's Jacob's passivity that creates this kind of moral vacuum then in which Simeon and Levi are free to act. And had Jacob exercised real righteous leadership in the context and given some direction to the justified emotions that his, that his sons felt, if he had given some direction to that, this whole disaster could have been, well, not the rape, but the subsequent events could have been avoided. And the, and the ongoing consequences of that many generations later could have been avoided if Jacob had just simply stepped up to the plate, so to speak, and acted righteously and given righteous leadership to his family in that context. But he doesn't. He's very passive. What other mistake has Jacob made that's kind of led to this predicament? Well, I wasn't here last week, but just based on what you were talking about and what the passage says was he tried to hide this event from his son. So the mistake, probably the mistake you're talking about something else, but one mistake was the fact he raised his sons in such a way he knew how they would react and that he would not be able to control them, apparently. Well, I, we didn't we didn't really uh, I, I don't know where where you see that, Jim. Uh, we didn't we didn't necessarily conclude that he was trying to hide it from us. He he kept it quiet until they came in. The idea was yeah. he wasn't going to do anything until they got there. Yeah, yeah, that may be it. But I, yeah, I didn't yeah I didn't see that there. Uh, I didn't see any commentators who saw that there. They assumed that he just is not going to do anything until the sons get there. Because as we talked about last week, both the sons and the father do have some input in the decisions that are made about what's going to happen with the, with the young women in the family. Yes? Well, I, I think this was kind of a political thing. I think Jacob realized Okay, what, what do you mean by political? Can you elaborate? I think it had to do with the politics of the land. Okay. Okay. The relationships between... The relationships. Yes. And so I think he took a step back and said, okay, when my sons come in, we'll talk about this and maybe see what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, we don't really know, based on the scripture, from what I can tell, what his state of mind is, although he wasn't happy about it. But he was probably using a little more restraint than his sons. Well, I, I think that's true. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And he's obviously giving consideration to the broader impact because as we get to the end of the chapter and he makes that comment at the end, you've made me odious. So he is very cognizant of that. And, and that is true. Uh, but the other thing that is striking, as you said, we don't really know his state of mind because the chapter doesn't tell us. But the chapter does tell us about the state of mind of the sons, doesn't it? And, and I pointed out last week that that's kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting void there in the chapter that there's no mention of Jacob's state of mind, which 
does imply to us that to some degree, and, and we, and until we get to the very end, we don't, we don't hear him say anything. He takes no stand. He takes no position. And so, so whatever he's doing, and I think to some degree he is weighing all these kind of political aspects, as you mentioned, whatever he's doing there, one of the things that I think the passage seems to be very clear is he's not really doing anything. And whatever his excuse or his reason for not doing anything, the Scripture gives us no indication that he ever gives any direction or leadership or, or uh, response to the things that are going up. And he gives us even no idea, like you say, of what is he feeling? What is he thinking about this? And I suggested last week, and this may have been unfair, but I don't think so, so I'm going to suggest it again. Uh, I, I suggested last week that part of the reason is because this is, this is Leah's daughter. This is not Rachel's daughter. So he has less investment in Leah's daughter than he does in, uh, in Rachel's children. Kind of that she's not with him. She Yes. Uh, Shechem's house. That, that does seem to be a complicating factor, doesn't it? That Dinah is still in Shechem's house. What were you going to say, Jimmy? Now, I'm not going to redo this whole lesson we did last week again. This is important. I think that she still at his house. And then I thought, but if he had raped her and given her bad, but then how much more disrespectful? And maybe they, because of the politics involved, you know, that other family made it a little more impact as well, but they also feel so bad. Yeah. But to say that he spoke tenderly to her, and isn't that just like a You had to get that in, didn't you? Yeah. Give her your elbow there, Mike. Give her your elbow. Kind of rein her in here. Actually, in all honesty, Ginger, there's a great deal of truth to what you just said. So, what are you going to say, Tom? She made it thoughtful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so those are some of the things that we talked about last week. But of course, as I as I said, uh, oh, go ahead. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, don't, I, I do know that maybe you'll get there that another mistake that they may have picked up on is probably they learned it sequence at some point in time because they figured it out. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think that's pretty clear. The way, the way uh, particularly Simeon and Levi act, but also apparently the other sons as well, as we'll talk about in the passage, the way they act is really just kind of an extension of the way Dad's been. He's been a deceitful man. And he is, by this point in his life, finally beginning to wake up to some of, the, some of his flaws and some of his weaknesses. He has now had his encounter with God, his wrestling with God there uh, at Peniel. And, and so, so God is transforming Jacob, but to some degree, the damage has already been done. His sons have learned this habitual life of deception from their father. But what strikes me too, and I mentioned this last week, is that the sons have also learned a life of violence. And the question is, where did they learn that life of violence? Because clearly there's no violence in their family history. There's no violence 
uh, in the family history of Abraham or or Isaac or uh, or in any or any previous point with Jacob. What if, as much of a scoundrel as Jacob was, we never see him uh, tending towards violence. The only violence we see, of course, in the story of Abraham is when he was in the war with the kings, where he has to act in defense of his uh, of his nephew Lot. But so. So one of the things that I conclude is that his sons have grown up, as we mentioned last week. They've lived now in the vicinity of Shechem for eight or ten years. And they have grown up in this context and around the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and these others who, uh, for whom violence is a way of life. And, and they have picked up this, this, uh, this mentality and this way of thinking. And this is one of the things that's so destructive about Jacob's decision to stay at Shechem and not go on to Bethel and on uh, ultimately to Beersheba as God had told him to do. But he gets waylaid there at Shechem for whatever reason, which was a necessary place for him to go to, but was a terrible place for him to stay. And, uh, and we talked about that on the spiritual level, how Shechem represents that that place of decision, that place of commitment to God. And it's a necessary place for us to come to in our lives. But if we stay there and we never go on to Bethel, we never go on to the deeper relationship with God and the deeper worship of God, if we never go on to Beersheba, which is living in faithfulness to God uh, uh, year after year, day after day, month after month, week after week, and year after year, living faithfully through the mundane activities of life, if we never go on to that point, uh, then it's going to lead to compromise in our life and it's going to lead to problems and that's kind of what happens with with Jacob here in Czech. I kind of wonder too if his uncle or their uncle to, uh, had any influence on him. Esau, matter. you mean? Yeah. yeah. No, that's... He yeah. Was, he was a man Obviously a man of violence. Down. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's go on with the story. Uh Picking it up in verse 8, uh, we have this, this negotiation that goes on then between Hamor and Shechem, representing the people of Shechem, and, uh, and uh, Jacob and, and his sons, primarily Jacob's sons, this negotiation goes on. And the first thing that happens is that Hamor and Shechem come to Jacob, hat in hand, so to speak, with a proposal for him. And what is the proposal? Beginning there in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, in that area. Well, it's not just a marriage. Let's just all live together and trade and intermarry and do everything. Okay. More behind it, it jumps right out. There's always an opportunity to blend into the world. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's just, you know, like Mike said, it just jumps out at you here. Hamor is coming now. Hamor is coming from the perspective of the world. Okay, we don't expect anything better from Hamor. Okay, this is the way the world thinks. He doesn't, he doesn't worship God. He doesn't know God. So we don't expect any more from Hamor. He just comes proposing what seems reasonable to him. He comes to the people of God and he says, "Let's just." Mix it all together. Okay, so by that proposal that he makes, we can conclude that even though Jacob had lived here now for eight or ten years, they really hadn't intermingled up to this point. They'd pretty much kind of kept to themselves. Okay, but now Hamor is making this proposal, and of course the primary 
motivating factor is he wants to resolve this issue about Shechem and Dinah. Okay, so he wants to resolve that. So he wants them to be able to get married. He's very open about that. He says that he says, I, I, you know, my son loves your daughter and, and we're asking that you give her marriage. But let's go further than that. Uh, we'll just we'll give our daughters to you and you give your daughters to us and we will intermarry. And the idea is it comes out clear in the passage, particularly as we go further, that what Hamor has in mind and even what Jacob and Jacob's sons are talking about, even though they're doing it deceptively, is the idea of becoming one people. Okay, so it's the idea of the the mingling together, the breaking down of the distinction between the descendants of Abraham and the occupants of the land of Canaan. Okay, that's what's being proposed. And you'll notice he says, you live in the land and trade in it and acquire property. So they're really kind of two problems with this proposal that Hamor is making. And one is the one that that Mike has pointed out is that is is that what he's suggesting is that the distinction between the people of God and the people of the world be obscured. Yes, uh, David. Would it, be, would it be, and I was like too far out to say that there seems like there's also a motive that he just wanted to take over the future. It said in verse 23, won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? That almost every three people out and take over their... Well, I, I don't think uh, that it, you, you could read that into that. I don't think necessarily that his idea is to dominate, but his idea is we're going to we are going to uh, every, since everything's going to be one, their property will be our property and our property will be their property. And so the idea is the economic benefit for everybody involved, I think, is the idea. Uh, uh, well, uh, n- not necessarily socialism, but but it's the idea that. The more people you have doing business together, the more prosperity you have. And that's the idea. Uh, that's the idea that's being promoted here. Um, <laughs> but but the, the, the first problem, of course, is the suggestion of the breakdown of this distinction. And one of the things that's very clear in Scripture is that God has called his people to holiness. Now, when we talk about holiness, <clears throat> we usually think about righteous living or, you know, living purely. OK, but what does the word holy really mean? Pardon? Separation. Yeah, it's the idea of separation. And so it involves this idea of 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 upright living and, and moral purity and things like that. It involves all of that, but it's but it's a it's a broader term than that. And, and God has called his people, <clears throat> the descendants of Abraham first, and then, of course, uh, in the New Testament, as we move into the church age, the body of Christ, he has called us to be a people holy to him. That is, separated to him. And that involves, the, 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 uh, among other things, that involves our living pure lives, righteous lives, lives where we forgo the sins and the temptations of the world and we live our lives devoted to God and God expects his people to be holy and separate and distinct from the world. Now, the world, on the other hand, is always offering to us a great opportunity if we will just become one with them. And so the world is always working to break down that distinction that sets us apart. Okay. Now, what we need to understand about the people of God and their holiness or their separation is that there 
is that their separation is to the Lord. They are holy and they are distinct because they are associated with the Lord. Okay, so it's not that the people of God are distinct because in the Old Testament they were circumcised or that they were distinct because they had this particularly particular kind of cultic system of worship that was different than the worship system of the other uh, religions around them. That's not what makes them holy. What makes them holy is that they are associated with Yahweh. That they are Yahweh's people. And they, and they do, because they are Yahweh's people, they live like Yahweh wants them to live. And that makes their holiness and their separation very obvious and very conspicuous. But what's happening here is that Hamor is suggesting, forget all that. Forget all that separation and distinction stuff. Let's just mingle together and we'll all benefit. We're going to get rich. You're going to get rich. And we're just going to have a good deal going here. Okay, so that's the first problem. But there's another problem here that I think is instructive to us. We've talked about this before. You'll notice that he says to Jacob, he says, if you do this, you, we exchange daughters and et cetera, et cetera, and you dwell in the land and you live in the land and you will do what? Acquire property. Now, what does that make you think about? Okay, permanence. Well, you got to be, yeah, you got to be related in some way, uh, but but more significant than those things. Well, I wonder whose property it was anyway. Was this the same property that God gave him? Okay, okay, now we're getting there. Now we're getting there, okay? God promised. Okay, they, Jacob already has a promise, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't have the property. He doesn't possess the property. God says, I will give this to you. Okay. Now, clear back in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham was really struggling with his faith and trying to figure out from God, okay, now, God, you've made all these promises, but when and how is all this going to happen? And so he's kind of quizzing God and asking God, now, God, when and how and what? There in chapter 15. God tells him when he's going, the, the land is actually going to be given to his descendants. And you remember what he tells him? Okay. He says you're going to go away to another land and they're going to be there for 400 years and they're going to be enslaved there for 400 years and then I will bring you back to the land. Now, what's being presented to Jacob here is the opportunity to possess the land without Egypt. Without going through Egypt. Without going through 400... Pardon? Uh, well, he bought... A, yeah, he bought a piece of property. But the idea here is... I mean, he bought the land he's living on, but the idea that's being presented here is, you know, you can just... You can really acquire the property here. And, and, the, and the thing that is is striking to me here is this is so similar to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he offers him what? All the kingdoms of the world if what? If you'll just worship me. Now, he's talking to Jesus here. Jesus has already been promised all the kingdoms of the world. After he does what? 
Yeah, goes through the cross. Okay. So what? So the significance of the temptation. One of the significances there of the temptation of Christ is he's been offered what's already been promised to him. He's been offered something that God wants him to have. He's been offered him something good, but without the cross. And Jesus, of course, is wise enough and good enough to know that whatever it is he's being offered, it's not really fully what God promised. Because if Christ had taken that offer by Satan in the wilderness, he would have had all the kingdoms of the world that would have been a hollow kingdom indeed because he would not have had the righteous inhabitants of his kingdom that he will have now because he has endured the cross. Well, of course, yeah, that's another issue too. Yeah. But what's striking to me is what's going on here with Hamor is so similar to what went on with Jesus in the wilderness is that Jacob is being offered now to acquire property in the land. And listen, Jacob, you don't have to go into slavery. You don't have to go to Egypt. You don't have to go through all this. And what he's being offered, God has already offered to him. In other words, it's a good thing. It's something God wants him to have. Now, if you can't see the spiritual implications of this in your home life, I certainly can in mine. That oftentimes in our lives, there are good things, very good things, that God wants us to have. Maybe things God has even promised to us. And then Satan comes along or the world comes along and says, hey, this is a good thing. Just get it this way. Don't go by the Via Dolorosa. Don't go by the way of the cross. Don't go through servitude in Egypt. You see, they had to go through servitude in Egypt because God said He had to humble their hearts through labor. It was necessary they go through Egypt that they be humbled. And what Jacob is being offered here is the possession of the land without the humility that comes from Egypt. And in our lives, we are so oftentimes presented with the opportunity for some kind of benefit or gain or thing, and it may be something very good. It may be something which in itself intrinsically is very wholesome. It may be something that God even ultimately wants us to have, has even promised to us, but we are offered alternative ways of getting it. You're going to get to verse 12. Not only does he offer all that, but then he basically says, name your price for your wedding. And he throws that in as a kicker. It's almost like an insurance salesman or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Best yeah. deal in the world. Yeah. And then I'm going to give it to you for half. Whatever you want. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's like those ads on TV where they say, this is worth, you know, $125 and we'll sell it to you for $19.95, you know. So. Yeah, and of course, that's Shechem that makes that final offer there rather than Hamor. He kind of, Shechem is so desperate. He says, come on, Dad, let's get to the point here. I want, I want Dinah, you know. And so Shechem makes this very, uh, very desperate offer in order to try to secure Dinah for his wife. Well, that's the proposal. What is Jacob's response to the proposal? I didn't hear him say too much. Yeah, it was a trick question, wasn't it? <laughs> there is no response. 
Jacob does not respond to the proposal. At this point, the whole scene shifts over to the sons. And that, I think, in itself is instructive. Now, we have to be careful about making arguments based on the silence of Scripture, but, but boy, I tell you, there's something, something's wrong. You know, there's something smelly here in Denmark, you know, with this, this proposal being offered to Jacob. And the implication is, with, with his sons now stepping in and making the counterproposal, if you will, the implication is, Jacob's cool with this. This will work for him. You know, we can work this thing out. Now, whatever his motivations, if his motivations were political, and I'm sure to some degree, uh, as Ron suggests, I think they probably are. He's thinking about the broader scope of things, which unfortunately kind of compromises him morally in this case. Whatever his motives are, he, he just kind of acquiesces in whatever his sons come up with. Okay? And of course, it's pretty clear he doesn't know what they're really planning. So he's not... It's not like he sat down with his sons and they've discussed all this and he goes, okay, we'll work with your plan. It's not that. It's that the sons come up with this deceptive scheme and they propose it and Jacob just sits there silently going, well, whatever works, works. Well, so the sons then respond with their counterproposal and their counterproposal is what? Let's do it in Okay, okay. We can't do this the way you're proposing it here. We can't do this because we can't give our sister to an uncircumcised man. Okay? So now, on the surface, that all seems very spiritual, right? Very spiritual sounding. But of course, it prefaces it by telling us their offer is deceptive. From the very outset, they have, other, they have ulterior motives for what they're ordering. And that word deceptive there is used nearly 40 times in the Old Testament. Every single time it's used, it's used in a pejorative sense. So the narrator is trying to tell us quite emphatically that whatever happens here is wrong. This is just wrong, folks. And sometimes commentators try to, try to mitigate it and try and put the brothers in a better light or whatever, but it's very clearly wrong. And the narrator is making it clear. This is wrong. This is deceptive. This is a pejorative term he uses to describe what the brothers are doing. Okay? And, and ultimately then, when we see, when Jacob finally comes around to a righteous assessment of what his sons did in Genesis chapter 49, we see very clearly that there's a spiritual condemnation of what Simeon and Levi do. But initially, it simply says, the sons make this offer. And it doesn't single out Simeon and Levi till much later in the story. When, the, when we get to the part about the, this, just, uh, this excessive, gross, overboard violence. Okay. So at this point, it seems like more than Simeon and Levi are involved. Uh, some commentators suggest all the sons. I find that a little difficult to believe because I can't see Joseph in on this for a couple of reasons. One is, is this just doesn't fit with what we know of Joseph's character. And the second thing, Joseph at this point is quite young, probably younger than Dinah at this point. So he's probably in his early teens. It's unlikely that Joseph is having a lot of input into this thing. So, but it does seem to imply that other sons other than Simeon and Levi or in addition to Simeon and Levi are involved in this scheme. Okay. Now, I don't think that because the Scripture singles out uh, because the Scripture does single out Simeon and Levi for particular reprimand for what they do, I don't think the other sons really had a plan that it was going to go as far as it went. Okay. 
But I do think that to some degree the, the sons were thinking, okay, we'll do this. We'll get all these guys circumcised and, and then we'll get our daughter out of there or we'll get our sister out of there. And possibly they were also thinking of taking uh, retaliation against Shechem and maybe Shechem's father. I don't think uh, that they envisioned the scale of things that Simeon and Levi eventually carry out. Yes, David. So you think Simeon and Levi could have been deceiving their brothers as well as what their real plan was? Uh, very possibly, yeah. Yes, very possibly. <laughs> that they may have had a broader plan in mind. Hey, Rick, I, was, I was reading the commentator, and I don't know if they were trying, this guy was trying to dismiss them, but he was suggesting that they didn't really have a big plan to go and do anything, but they thought this is going to be so ridiculous asking all these guys to be circumcised. They won't do it. They'll give her daughter back, and everything will be okay. That's what he, he suggested. So. I don't know. I think that, but I think that the that the scripture's characterization of the deception implies that there was more plan involved in that. Uh, personally, yeah. there was another thing I, I thought about. This may be an extreme idea, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. Thinking about Jacob and his inaction here, it seems like early in his life he was uh, took a lot of action he was very aggressive and and then God humbled him and maybe he went way the other way and now he's being very passive and not doing anything that's a real easy tendency to have whenever you have one of those character traits like I have and you you know be aggressive when you get humble and say okay well I'm going to step back and not do anything then you don't take action when you should well, I don't know if that was happening with Jacob, but I clearly agree with you. Uh, I see that tendency in my own life. I, I made some pretty serious mistakes early in life, and, and I find myself quite gun-shy now. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a battle I have to fight against. So, yeah, I could certainly see that. Yes, Ron? I, I just went back and looked at this. You know, the first part of this, I think initially, when he talks about him finding out about Dinah with all his references, his sons. Yeah. So it never says which son. It says all the sons. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And only down, only down at the end, uh, verse 25. Right. That was Simeon and Levi. Yes. They're the ones that were going to be killed. Yes. So it sounds like all the sons, whoever that includes, yes. those two are the ones that actually took the action. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so at any rate, they make this proposal. Now, the, this offer, and of course, uh, under the undercurrent of it is it's a deception to start with, okay? But but let's just set that aspect of it aside and just ask ourselves for a moment and contemplate what's wrong with their offer. They have suggested to these guys, well, listen, you guys just be circumcised here, and it'll all work out, okay? And the question is, what's wrong with that? Okay, okay. What they are doing is they are profaning a sacred rite. They're taking something which is sacred and holy to the people of Abraham, to the descendants of Abraham, and they are profaning it. Okay? And, and, and uh, the public commentary points out at least three things that are a problem here. One is that they are offering circumcision to a pagan people. Now, the, the reality is that, 
that circumcision was practiced in other groups, in other cultures besides just uh, just the children of Israel. So there were other pagan cultures and families that practiced the rite of circumcision. Okay, but that's really irrelevant to the issue because God has now taken that rite, which was used to some degree culturally within the context of the culture by other groups for whatever reasons. And God has now sanctified that in relationship to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And God has said to you, to you people, you Abraham and your descendants and the people of your house, your servants, and every man in your house, this is what circumcision means and it means your identification with the covenant. And God has now sanctified circumcision and made it a holy thing, made it a separate thing, Made it, a, made it a sacred thing. And so, so now, Abraham and his descendants represent the people of God, represent those people who are set apart to God, the, the holy people. The people to whom he says, he says, you come out from among them, i.e. the world. You come out from among them and be separate. And don't touch the unclean thing, he says. And I will be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. These are the promises that God made to them. This idea of holiness or separation, and it's all associated with circumcision. And circumcision doesn't make somebody holy. Somebody is holy because of their identification with Yahweh. Someone is holy because of their association with God but circumcision is the sign. It's the, it's the visible outward sign of that association with God. But there's no association with Yahweh that's offered to the Hivites here. There's no suggestion to them that they repent and bury their foreign gods and, and forsake their foreign gods and come and worship Yahweh. There's none of that. It's just simply an offer to the pagan people. You just go ahead and you just do this external rite. Okay? That's the first problem. Uh, the second problem is that they are using a sacred and holy thing as a bargaining tool. They are using this sacred, holy rite or practice of circumcision. They are using it as a bargaining tool. If you do this for us, we'll do this for you. And so that which is sacred and holy and separated unto God now becomes just a mere economic device. And it is profane. And then, of course, the third and perhaps the most grievous thing is they have taken circumcision and they have made it an element of their deception. They are using it to deceive their enemy and to exploit and take advantage of their enemy. Well, what really strikes me about this, we read this and we go, oh, okay, well, that's all kind of interesting. And this all, is, you know, we can understand how it all works in the culture back then. But what possible relevance does that have to us today? Is there any spiritual relevance to this? To us today? I see it all over the place. I see it all over the place. Now, what we have... And just to, uh, for sake of example here, what we have in this story here is the story of a young man who wants to get married, right? And so what's being offered to him is, if you will just practice this spiritual right, 
but not mean it. It has no spiritual significance or reality to it. You just do it, and you can marry our daughters. Oh, now it's starting to kind of come clear, isn't it, how this has relevance to us today. You know, how many, how many young people have we known in our lives who have fallen in love, wanted to get married, but the person they're wanting to marry either is a believer and they are not, or is not a believer and they are. And so what do they do? Yeah. Go through all the motions. Join the church. Read your Bible. Pray. You know, go to marriage counseling. Take communion. Do all the sacred holy things to look like us. So we, so we look like we're one people. And how many marriages have there been that were carried out with that sometimes deception, open, uh, just outright deception, and sometimes it's maybe not intentional deception, it may be an invert, inadvertent deception, but how many times have we seen marriages like that happen and what's the result? The result so oftentimes is disaster. Now, once in a while, God marvelously intervenes and you know, the unsaved one gets saved and, you know, and things. But, but more often than not, there's disaster. So there's, an, there's just an example to us of the, of the present day relevance of this passage to us. But it doesn't just happen in this area. It happens, it happens in all different aspects of life. That when we as believers want what the world has to offer, we are oftentimes willing to sell down the river the things that are the most holy and sacred to us. And so to, to be able to carry out a business deal that we think is important or, or birth a relationship that we think is important or, or get or acquire something we think we really want, that we are willing to let that which is holy and sacred become profane. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders at it and then we wonder why the things that used to be so meaningful to us have no real meaning to us anymore. You know, this may seem like a little example and maybe an insignificant one to some of us, but, you know, it kind of bugs me to death. This is the way the world uses the song Amazing Grace. It just offends me. This offends me no end. You hear it everywhere. Good grief. I think you hear it at football games. They have no... I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. But you hear it everywhere. I remember watching a program on PBS one time about the song Amazing Grace. And it talked about the history of it. and that sort of, But it showed it being sung and used in all these different contexts. And I go, they have no clue what that song is about. One of the most meaningful hymns of the, of the Christian church to those of us who love the grace of God and have experienced the grace of God and know what it means. And the world just sings it and they just, you know, they, I don't know what they think grace is, but they have no clue. And that which is holy to us has become profaned. And, and you know, that's, that's, like I say, perhaps a superficial example, you know. But, but on a more important level, some of the things we talked about, the Lord's Supper, Baptism, the reading of scriptures, the fellowship of believers. Those are the those are the things that are really sacred and divine and holy. And to those of us who love God 
they are deeply precious. And those are the things oftentimes that, 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 that get profane. They get diminished when we barter with them and when we use them or when the world uses them in order to perhaps deceive us and make us think that they're one with us. So, such is the offer of the sons, and of course it is a deceptive offer because they have a plan. What is the response of Hamor and Shechem to this offer? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. You know, he can't wait. Now I'm going. Shechem, do you have any idea how much this hurts? <laughs> you know, this is this is not a pleasant experience for a guy. Okay, for an adult guy. Uh, you know, I remember when my son was eight days old and we took him over to the hospital and, you know, he didn't think real kindly to us doing that to him. You know, it's not, you know, I don't want to get too graphic here, but it's, it's not nice, folks. Okay. And these, just, these guys just go, hey, listen, it's no problem because what we're going to gain is going to be so much greater than what we have to endure here for a few days. And so it says... They considered their words reasonable. <laughs> they thought, this is reasonable. Okay. And they thought it was reasonable because, as somebody was pointing out, they saw they, they, there's a good deal of financial gain they can make out of this deal. Okay. They're, they're going to they're gonna make off like bandits here. Okay. So, so that's good. And then in addition to that, we have Shechem's reputation. That Shechem is the most respected of all his father's household. Presumably more respected than Hamor. You know, and Shechem, he just goes out and gets it done right away. So he's the example. You know, I've done it. Come on, guys, let's do it. You know, we can do this thing. And so they, so they agree to it. And then about three days later, all these guys are in just incredible pain. And this is the point at which Simeon and Levi, whether or not they had conceived of the fullness of this plan before or not, is not clear. But they act at this point and they go and they get their swords and they go in and they kill Hamor and Shechem and all the men of the city. And they grab Dinah and they leave. Now, what's wrong with what Hamor and she- or excuse me, with what Simeon and Levi do. Or let me put it this way. I mean, because you you know, on, on the surface it looks pretty obvious. But let me put it this way. How is what Simeon and Levi did different than what God had the children of Israel do four hundred years later when they come into Canaan? and kill all the males of the city and plunder the city. Because here, quite clearly, the Holy Spirit, through Moses the narrator, is condemning the act. But later, when we get into Exodus and Joshua, uh, you know, then, then we see that, that God actually commands this kind of act. Okay. Okay. Now this is an important distinction to make. Uh, in the last number of years, since we've had so much interface with uh, with uh, Muslim people and the Muslim uh, religion here in our culture and between Christianity and Muslims, 
And when we when we are critical of the Muslim jihad, oftentimes what Muslims will say in defense is, well, look at what God had, you know, what you all did in, in, in the Old Testament. Look what the, you know, what look what the people of God did in the Old Testament and how God had them go in. And, and it's just the same thing as a jihad. How do you answer that question? How do you answer that accusation? We can't say God told us to do it because that's what they would say. Okay. God told us to do it too. Okay. Whereas, you know, with this specific act, that they were to pitch for us to get hell is coming. Okay. Okay. The, the primary issue here is that God made it it is God. It is, of course, God giving the land to the to His people according to His promise. But it is more than that. It is also God's punishment on the Canaanites because they have filled up the cup of wickedness. In other words, it is not Israel's retaliation against the Canaanites for some perceived wrong. It is that God has sent them in to act in judgment and punishment upon the Canaanites because God said that, they're, that they have filled up the cup of wickedness, that they have, they have reached the point at which he must act. And that's what, what actually God says to Abraham in the passage we referred to earlier when God told Abraham that the children of Israel would go down, uh, his descendants would go down into Egypt and be there for 400 years in slavery and then that God would judge that nation and bring them out. And then it says, I'm going to bring you here into the land of Canaan. He says, when the sin of the Amorites is full. So the difference between the difference between a jihad, so to speak, and what God is doing here is God is punishing the wicked in the land of Canaan when their wickedness is full. And in every case, there is a specific, direct revelation from God. It's not that God has just given this blanket command. Just go in and wipe everybody out. But when they act, they act when God says, okay, I want, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go in and I want you to take this land. I want you to take these people. I want you to treat these people this way. And God gives a specific verbal revelation as to what they're to do. And it is God's punishment upon the wicked when their wickedness has filled up. Now, the difference with the difference with Simeon and Levi here, as Mike pointed out, is this is just a personal vendetta. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, he would never do it this way. And and it is them acting out of revenge. Okay. And and it's clear because God has has made it clear their wickedness is not going to be filled up for many, many, many centuries yet, for four centuries yet. So, so clearly it's not God's punishment on the Hivites. It's not God's punishment on the city of Shechem. And yet the whole city of Shechem perishes for one man's sin. You see? So there are actually some marked distinctions between what Levi and Simeon do. And, and that is why then... Jacob reprimands them. And that's why ultimately they suffer the consequences that they suffer. Which is that both Simeon and Levi forfeit the possibility of leadership of the nation. 
And the reason I say that is because later we're going to find out that Reuben, the firstborn, will forfeit his right to leadership. And when Jacob finally pronounces the blessings on the 12 sons in Genesis 49, it's very clear that Reuben is excluded from leadership and, his, and the tribe is excluded from leadership because of what we're going to read about Reuben doing later. Okay? So then, if Reuben is knocked out, then who's next in line? Pardon? No. Simeon. Simeon is next in line. If Reuben's knocked out, Simeon's next in line. Okay? Because he's the second born. Okay? But he has now forfeited that by this act of violence. And if Simeon's knocked out, who's third in line? Levi. And Levi is knocked out. Okay? And so if Levi is knocked out, who's next in line? Huh? Judah. Now, here's a remarkable thing. That God's intention that the Messiah come through Judah is fulfilled even through the wrath of men. So that God sovereignly works, providentially works, even when men are doing evil things and wicked things, God is able through those things to still accomplish His purposes. Well, not only do they forfeit their position of leadership within the tribe or within the nation, but they also forfeit their possession. So both Levi and Simeon, the tribes of Levi and Simeon, as we will see later, do not receive an inheritance of land when they come into the promised land. The Levites, of course, they become the priests and they they are given cities in which to dwell, but they're never actually given a land a region of the promised land. And the same is true with Simeon. Simeon is given Simeon eventually is subsumed into the nation into the tribe of Judah. And they're given some cities within the tribe of Judah, within the land of Judah, but they're never given their own land. So there are ongoing consequences. So the significance of this story is important to the children of Israel in the wilderness because they're getting ready to go in the promised land and the land's being ready. They're going to hear in a few years, they're going to be dividing up the land in the, in the promised land. It's important that they understand why the land is divided the way it is. And so it is important for them to understand what has happened and to understand the consequences of sin. But through it all, still, as we see, God is providentially working. And, and we can take great encouragement for that because as we look around us, we see a lot of evil and a lot of wicked in the world. And oftentimes it seems like God's plans and God's uh, purposes are being thwarted. But God's plans and God's purposes are not being thwarted. And even through the greatest imaginable wickedness that happens... God is still able to fulfill and accomplish His purposes. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. Because I look around and I see a lot of junk going on. And it's good to know God's still in control. Well, one of the things that God's going to do through this terrible circumstance is He's going to finally get Jacob to Bethel. And that's what we'll look at next week. Okay?